Hello again, and welcome back to our readings from the book, What is Man, Adam, Alien, or Ape? In the first reading, we began with chapter one and considered that man was very unlikely to be a superior ape. He is much more than that. And we're now continuing in chapter one to see the alternatives. If man is not an ape, then what alternatives are there to explain the origin and nature of humankind? We here offer uh, several alternatives to the common narrative of man having emerged from apehood by a process of uh, normal evolution. The subheading on this section is image of an emergent spirit. Is man made in the image of an emergent spirit? In a spirited attack on the unvarnished molecules to man scenario of Charles Darwin, a British physician and neuroscientist, Raymond Tallis, sets out his opposition to much modern thinking about the nature of man. And he does so in his book, Aping Mankind, Neuromania, Darwinitis, and the Misrepresentation of Humanity. The book is described on the flyleaf as a devastating critique that exposes the exaggerated claims made for the ability of neuroscience and evolutionary theory to explain consciousness, behavior, culture, and society. This is particularly interesting because Talis describes himself as an atheist and also a humanist. But he completes the sentence, I believe that we should develop an image of humanity that is richer and truer to our distinctive nature than that of an exceptionally gifted chimp. Talis makes it clear that he accepts neo-Darwinian evolution for all life forms bar one but underlines man's distinctiveness in the following terms. <clears throat> Humans woke up from being organisms to being something quite different. Embodied subjects, self-aware and other-aware, in a manner and to a degree not approached by other animals. Out of this, a new kind of realm was gradually formed. This, the human world, 
is materially rooted in the natural world, but is quite different from it. It is populated by individuals who are not just organisms, but inhabit an acknowledged shared public sphere, structured and underpinned by an infinity of abstractions, generalizations, customs, practices, norms, laws, institutions, facts and artifacts unknown to even the most social of animals. That closes the quotation. Attalus then spends the rest of his 361 pages presenting his detailed case arguing that the nature of man cannot be reduced to neurons and brain states or explained as a simplistic Darwinian fallout. The key terms in the last quotation is of course the expression woke up. It is this awakening that Talus believes transformed mankind from being a mere animal to being something else. But as a self-confessed atheist, he is of course unable to credit this awakening to God and must instead devise some wholly new and naturalistic explanation for it. He does make an effort to find such explanations as we shall see later, but his attempts to do so fail and he, he is forced in his final chapter, entitled Back to the Drawing Board, to write, quote, okay, you might say you have told us what is wrong with the biological account of human beings. Uh, but isn't this only the beginning, not the end of the matter? <clears throat> now tell us what you will put in its place. The truth is that I don't know, but I am sure that no one else knows either." Close quote. Under the heading Conclusions, he quotes Jerry Fodor, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers University and an authority on philosophy of mind and cognitive science writing on the hard problem, that's in quotation marks, the hard problem of human consciousness, the Fodor admits, quote, we can't, as things stand now, so much as imagine the solution to the hard problem. The revisions of our concepts and theories that imagining a solution will eventually require are likely to be very deep and very unsettling. There's hardly anything we may not have to cut loose from before the hard problem is through with us. The hard problem, I would remind you, is the problem of explaining human consciousness. 
There is, of course, only one kind of answer that the atheist can offer to the hard problem of human consciousness, namely that it has somehow emerged from the tangle of neurons, synapses, chemical fluxes and electrical impulses we call the brain. This alleged process is often modelled by the idea, fueled by science fiction writers, that as computers become more complex, powerful and sophisticated, they will at some stage acquire consciousness and begin to match the minds of humans. Uh, but even if this were to happen, which is highly unlikely, it could only do so as a result of the labors, intelligence and ingenuity of human computer architects and software writers. Emergent consciousness is not something that can just happen by accident. We will return to the question of human consciousness in chapter 9. We have a, a new subheading here. Image of an implanted spirit. Is man made in the image of an implanted spirit? <clears throat> Even those who side with King David offer two very different scenarios. Special, that is miraculous creation, or theistic evolution. The latter view subscribes to neo-Darwinian evolution and common descent, but insists that it was and is directed in some manner by God. In effect, theistic evolution holds that God used the process of evolution to bring mankind into existence along with all other life forms, of course. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes one such scenario in the following words, quote, For long centuries God perfected the animal form which was to become the vehicle of humanity and the image of himself. He gave it hands whose thumbs could be applied to each of the fingers and jaws and teeth and throat capable of articulation and a brain sufficiently complex to execute all of the material motions whereby rational thought is incarnated. The creature may have existed in this state for ages before it became man. It may even have been clever enough to make things which a modern which a modern archaeologist would accept as proof of its humanity. But it was only an animal. Close quote. At first sight, this scenario offers an attractive option, since it seems to sidestep the need for any physical miracle. It thus embraces the scientific claims of evolutionary theory and yet by thoughtfully keeping God in the loop avoids the philosophical bleakness of atheism. 
However, a little thought shows that the matter is not so simple. The God-implanted consciousness appealed to here that would necessarily entail miraculous changes in brain structure and function. Otherwise, there would be nothing to distinguish the humans from their animal progenitors. And by rejecting emergent consciousness and substituting divinely implanted consciousness, this narrative necessarily appeals to a non-natural process as the creative step that separates Adam from the apes. A small invisible miracle in the brain might seem easier to swallow than a dramatic dust to Adam creation. But once any miraculous origin for man is allowed, it is hard to see what size has got to do with it. Uh, but this is not the only problem with the implanted consciousness theory. <clears throat> Firstly, of course, any arguments for or against the scientific validity of common descent apply equally to this idea, at least up to the point of implantation. And we should look at these arguments in due course. Secondly, the scenario has somehow to account for the complete disappearance of the pre-human race that, in terms of biological development, would have been indistinguishable from humanity. What, with their opposable thumbs and tool-making skills, these pre-humans would have been endowed with a huge evolutionary superiority over other animals. Yet they died out while less advantaged lower animals survived. Uh, Lewis suggests, of course, that fossil remains of these pre-humans would be physically indistinguishable from those of Homo sapiens and would be mistaken for humans by paleontologists. But these, quotes, human-looking but not human, close quotes, fossils should greatly outnumber genuine human fossils. So where are they hiding? And with such close resemblance between humans and pre-humans, would there not have been interbreeding to further confuse the picture? Again, we'll look more closely at these things in due course. Finally, we come to the subheading image of God, the option, alternative for the origin of man. The final view of human origins considered here is that man is made in the image of God. As stated in the book of Genesis, quotes, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the face of the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them." Close quote. 
Now, I am well aware that many who adopt the implanted image view of man offered by theistic evolution also believe that man is made in the image of God. But I am here distinguishing an implanted image from a created image. That is, I am using the image of God to describe the nature of a specially, that is miraculously, created being, concerning whom Genesis also says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Many years ago, I appeared in the British <clears throat> late night TV magazine program, Newsnight, along with the naturalist and TV presenter, David, now Sir David Attenborough, and astronomer Chandra Wickremasinghe, currently professor and director of the Buckingham Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham in the UK. Chandra had recently co-authored a book with astrophysicist Sir Fred Hoyle entitled Evolution from Space. And the discussion centered on this book's proposal that life arrived on Earth from space, a process known as panspermia. I was arguing for the creation on Earth by God and advancing as evidence the immense information content of living things. But David Attenborough, a champion of common descent, asked me scornfully if I believed that God took a handful of mud and fashioned it into a man. I didn't get the chance to answer because the presenter, John Snow, broke in at that point. But what I would have said in reply to David's question was, quote, but isn't that exactly what macroevolution teaches, except that it took 4,000 million years to happen by random mutations? Looked at in this way, I suggest all our explanations call for miracles of one kind or another, whether we are evolutionists or creationists. Uh, this is not perhaps as obvious as it should be because the evolutionary narrative claims the support of plausible natural processes to account for the transformation of mud into man. Whereas by definition, special creation can propose no such processes. But in my earlier book, Who Made God? I showed that the processes on which macroevolution relies are nowhere near as plausible as is claimed, and in the case of the origin of life itself, are actually non-existent. Does this mean, however, that arguments in favor of special creation are intrinsically negative, being limited to rebutting the positive claims of evolution? My answer is no. What it means is that the plausibility of creation scenarios 
rest on a much broader foundation, namely the totality of creative power that must be attributed to God if indeed he exists. For example, we see in chapter 2 that the origin of the universe is only explicable logically in terms of the creative activity of a non-material creator. And if we take that concept on board, then the special creation of man with his godlike attributes should present no difficulty to the rational mind, even though we can have no understanding of the miraculous process involved. In chapter 12, we shall explore the whole question of special creation, uh, the uh, imago dei, the image of God in man. Conclusion. Each of these four theories of human origins presents thinking people with significant difficulties. And it is the aim of this book to examine the evidence for or, or against each of them. But this will be no narrow inquiry consisting of a simple expansion of the points raised in this first chapter. We shall rather find it necessary to range widely over the science and philosophy of space and time, history and thought, but always, I trust, in a manner comprehensible to the lay reader. So fasten your seatbelts and hold tight. <laughs>